Hey guys, good evening and welcome to Mr. Huerta's uh, podcast on a kind of a quick overview of chapter 5. Of course, that's the chapter on the American Revolution. Uh, again, it should only be about 10 minutes or so. I'll do my best to kind of speed through the high points. And again, hopefully this can assist you with your notes, right? prepare you for the quiz, which as of right now is on Monday, or is on Monday, and then uh, your tests maybe in a week or so. Uh, so let's get going. Alright guys, so of course main topic for chapter 5 is the American Revolution. Again, just setting the scene kind of as far as the... Uh, transition from chapter 4 is the end of the French and Indian War, right, or Seven Years' War. England is a bit in a bit of a bind in that they have more territory than they kind of know what to do with, and they uh, are in a ton of debt because of that Seven Years' War and how it strained them, right, fighting the French and eventually emerging uh, victorious. All right, guys, so the opening part of the chapter kind of focuses on uh, the different perceptions of both sides, right, Parliament and King George III, right, that took over in 1760, and it comments a little bit on the Whigs being the dominant faction in the Parliament back in England, and their like kind of uneasiness with George III's takeover and his uh, kind of perception or his uh, very aggressive style of leadership. Right, they're worried it was kind of turning back the clock to when those kings kind of really challenged Parliament, and you know eventually a civil war kind of decided that Parliament's uh, power was kind of supreme. Uh, and again, that's a key with this early part, right, in the breakdown of that political trust, is that overbearingness of George III, uh, that insecurity of Parliament, and then George III's continuously hiring and firing of key ministers and key advisors, which you know a lot of people look at as kind of pointing to the instability of policy towards the American colonies and stuff like that. Good. Uh, they also make a big deal with the term parliamentary sovereignty, right? Uh, basically the belief that uh, Parliament is kind of supreme, uh, the supreme sort of power in the uh, English government. And again, for uh, Parliament's kind of issues, right, is, you know, in their view, right, they did not answer to the American colonies, it was vice versa. And yet it was them, through them, right, that representative government was, was there, and they were kind of passing what was best for the empire and what was best for the American colonies. Again, the text kind of goes on to discuss the uh, issues with communication, right, the big-time lag months between uh, the people of Parliament and the American colonies, and just kind of the disconnect there that, you know, as much as Parliament may try, they, their perception, their views of what was going on in America was uh, not that great. Uh, they weren't that kind of connected, and there wasn't a lot, a lot. There was a lot of misunderstanding, and there was a lot of uh, kind of lag in that relationship and that communication between both sides of the Atlantic and stuff. Uh, very good. All right, guys. So the next one focuses now on the American perspective, right? So here we have the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, right? A time where uh, Americans are happy. There's a lot of growth going on. Uh, population-wise, of course, as well as uh, economically. And, you know, the idea is the future is theirs to be had, right? All this new territory up to the Mississippi and Canada now kind of brought into the fold as well. But once the proclamation line of 1763 is passed, right, and the Americans are urged not to go past the Appalachian Mountains, something they look on pretty suspiciously. And, uh, you know, this kind of suspicion will only kind of get worse and worse, right, as those new taxes, those new restrictions are passed on the American colonies. Again, some of the things important to kind of uh, think about, right, as far as the American perception, the ability to tax, right, was only something they had done for themselves, only their assemblies, like the House of Burgesses, but in all the colony, colonial assemblies, right, could tax their own citizens. That's only the only power they had in a very cherished and a very uh, uh, sacred policy to them, right? No one could kind of challenge them on that. And that's something, of course, that Parliament will challenge uh, in the lead-up to war. Uh, other things also important, again, the kind of sort of internet of its day, right? The colonial newspapers were the main way people got news, but pamphlets, journals, increasingly popular. 
And because, especially in the North, education was pushed so much, literacy rates were very high. So people were connected to what was going on. The news was biased against the British. And, uh, you know, people will be aware of these kind of latest happenings and, uh, you know, be active, be very politically active. Very good. All right, guys, so again, to hark on the other stuff, again, we have the stuff going on in the West, right, with now the uh, presence of a very large British army, right, in the kind of Midwest and what would be like Ohio and those regions. And, you know, the again, the suspicion of the Americans as far as questioning what role that army is kind of doing out there, right? And so the big thing, you know, it looks like maybe those, are they there to uh, protect them from the natives, right? Are they there to kind of enforce the proclamation line? Uh, the Americans are kind of unsure of that. And again, what makes this matter worse is the uh, kind of revolt or a big kind of rebellion under an Ottawa chief named Chief Pontiac, where the Indians kind of go on a pretty violent kind of tirade along the frontier. And there's violence on both sides, but, you know, a lot of settlers end up dying, a lot of natives end up dying. And it looks kind of ineffective, right, that this army there that is there by the British supposedly to protect the colonists, you know, doesn't appear to be that effective. So that reasoning doesn't really stand for the Americans too much. Um, so again, this will be a big thing, and then later on those troops, right, movement to Boston will be one of the key things in getting the war on its way. All right, guys, next uh, f section focuses on popular protests, so now uh, we have the effect of these different kind of, uh, you know, things taking place, right, these new taxes and so forth. So that begins with the Sugar Act of 1764, but the best example, the one I kind of used most, most in class, was the passage of the Stamp Act, right, in uh uh, in early uh, 1765, then it was set to go into effect November 1st, 1765. And again, the key thing with the Stamp Act is this is a direct tax, right, on legal documents, on, we said in class, right, you know, playing cards, on uh, marriage certificates, things like this. You know, the idea of the reach of this thing was going to be very, very different because it was, you know, had its sort of tentacles everywhere, right? Everybody would have felt that, the rich, the poor, everybody in between. Whereas a lot of the other stuff, right, the Navigation Acts, some extent, the Sugar Act, some of these other ones, are affecting the big shippers of sugar, of these protected goods, um, you know, in the colonies and stuff. So, you know, that Stamp Act is going to be really important, kind of mobilizing everybody. So first we have, of course, the Virginia Resolves out of the House of Burgesses, kind of pushed and championed by uh, Patrick Henry. And then other colonies will kind of agree and throw in with Virginia and agree. And eventually, uh, most of the colonies uh, meet in New York City in the Stamp Act Congress to kind of petition the king and tell them, you know, the, uh, how unfairly they believe they're being treated and how unfair they see these new taxes and new regulations on them. So, uh, again, you know, that's how the relationship begins to break down. Uh, very good. All right, guys, so the other stuff kind of fueling the crisis is, uh, again, back in England, the passage of more things like the Townshend duties. You know, it's almost like every step forward or everything that the parliament kind of amends in a way they kind of make worse, right, with the passage of new restrictions and then the really thing, the straw that kind of breaks the camel's back is the movement of those, that massive force, or a good chunk of that massive force that was in the Midwest, right, that was in the Ohio Valley, being moved to Boston or the Boston area in 1768. And again, this brings though that army, right, that is kind of despised and uh, drawing a lot of suspicion on the part of the Americans, now kind of face-to-face -face with the Americans. And, uh, you know, they're not going to like that, right? So again, the kind of key example for this sort of distrust, right, uh, is the Boston Massacre, which t uh, takes place in, on March 5th, 1770, where five American colonists will be killed. Again, not, you know, definitely not a massacre by necessarily any uh, definition, but, you know, the impact and the fact that the Americans did call it that, right, the Paul Revere engraving is really important. And, uh, you know, again, also important to realize the perception or the situation for the British, where customs officials are facing a lot of hostility, potential violence, 
right? Crowds are getting violent or very, very uh, active, and tension is at an all-time high. And uh, again, fortunately for those troops, right, they're found not guilty, eventually acquitted of, of that crime. But again, this just highlights the tension and how everything was really uh, fragile at that time. Uh, very good. All right, guys, so we have kind of a, a chilling out period from 1770 to 1773, surprisingly, right? But it's important to acknowledge the importance of Sam Adams and his group, the Sons of Liberty, and the effect they have kind of overall on the colonies and the colonies kind of overall organizing during this time. And Adams is seen as such a key revolutionary because of his role with the Sons of Liberty, his role in the Boston area, and his wealth is, is an important part of that. But also his formation of the Committee of Correspondence, was, which is basically kind of this network to villages all throughout Massachusetts meant to kind of uh, you know relate any issues they were having with the British. So this little network was going to keep people updated and make sure they kind of don't forget that, hey, these guys, things aren't better. We're still having problems, and uh, you know it's something we uh, need to address. Good. All right, guys, so now finally to the, the beginning of the war, right? So this really begins with the Boston Tea Party, uh, of course, in 1773. So again, this is uh, based on kind of reaction to the uh, Tea Act, which is uh, passed <laughs> uh, kind of mid-1773, and then, of course, uh, culminates with the December 1773, uh, you know, event where a bunch of Sons of Liberty and uh, others as well in the Boston area dress up as natives and dump a 340 or so chests of tea into um, Boston Harbor. So remember, the interesting thing about the Tea Act is actually going to make tea cheaper for colonists. But, you know, by this point, the Americans are kind of done. They just don't want to be dictated. Uh, they don't want to have their lives kind of run by Parliament, even if it means paying a little bit more for tea. So because of the destruction of that property, right, uh, again, your text has the amount here, about 10,000 pounds worth uh, of tea dumped into the harbor. You know, at this point now, London is done, right? Parliament is done. They're not really, uh, they don't want to hear anything about the Americans. They're kind of fed up with their actions over the past several years. So that leads to the passage of what we call the Intolerable Acts or the Coercive Acts. So again, the key things there in class, we talked about the closing of the Port of Boston until the company was compensated for that lost tea, right, that lost property. Massachusetts government is totally restructured, basically given martial law. And then, you know, there's other aspects to this as far as quartering troops and some of those things that are pretty important. But especially remember the closing of the port, and then now that, you know, it's stripped of kind of its self-government. Uh, good. All right, guys, the other steps towards independence or the other kind of sections are the meeting of the First Continental Congress to discuss, some, discuss the ramifications of this. So this takes place in kind of uh, late summer, early fall of 1774 in Philadelphia. And uh, there, again, main thing is reaction to the Intolerable Acts. And it's a big kind of pivot point because, you know, for a lot, of, a lot of the colonists, or especially for Massachusetts situation, they didn't know if they were going to be abandoned by the other colonies or supported. And they are supported. Um, and, you know, the main things that they agree to is uh, meeting again soon, about six months or so, and also form uh, formalizing kind of a boycott colony-wide of British goods to try to hurt the British in their wallets, right, or hurt them in their purse and stuff. Uh, very good. So again, between the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress, right, we have the shot heard around the world, right, which takes place just outside Boston and uh, in what we call the two villages, Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. So again, the key thing there and how that went down, right, General Gage uh, dispatches a group to go seize weapons, which he had been tipped off, were being stored at Lexington and Concord. And because of Paul Revere, Dawes, and a few others warning the countryside, right, before the British arrive, uh, they're able to kind of... Uh, hide those weapons that they'd been storing, and the British don't really find anything. But in that exchange and during that search, right, 
volleys are discharged, shots are fired on both sides, and that is the beginning of the revolution. So again, key thing there, that is the first battle, right? The introductory battle of the revolution. Later on, kind of mid-June, uh, we have another attack between militiamen, Massachusetts militia, and the British regulars at a place called Bunker Hill. Sometimes it's also called Breed's Hill. And here, again, it was, it was a British victory, but the Americans fight very well and do inflict a heavy amount of casualties on the British. So again, these two are the kind of two introductory battles. Keep in mind, there's no formal army. Washington's not even involved yet. Uh, and again, these are mostly militiamen, right? Just citizen soldiers uh, who uh, organized and took it upon themselves to attack the British Massachusetts. All right, guys, so because the fighting has now begun, now we have the Second Continental Congress. Uh, it takes place in May in Philadelphia of 1775. So by this time, again, the war is on, and the main kind of issue they're gra grappling with is how to organize for war. So the key things kind of to be decided here at this meeting will be uh, funding, right, which is basically going to be done by printing continental dollars or continental money, paper money. And, again, that does a decent job in the short run. Later on, will cause inflation. And then establishing an army known as the Continental Army and appointing George Washington as his commander. So Washington's you know, duty will be to report to New England, Massachusetts, and lead these scattered right, militiamen and try to organize and train a formal army. It's a very tough task, but uh, he'll do fairly well. All right, guys, kind of other stuff in the meantime. Uh, we have the uh, composition of Common Sense and its publication in January 1776. So a pretty recent immigrant, a guy named Thomas Paine, a rival from uh, England, writes a pamphlet where basically uh, argues uh, the need to uh, declare independence, right? Kind of attacking the king as a brute and so forth. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, it's all in the name, right? Common sense. It's common sense to separate these two entities, to separate from the mother country, and now kind of, uh, uh, you know, take your own path. So the key thing in common sense is extreme popularity, right? Sells 100,000 copies or is published uh, within three months. And again, the key thing and why it's important is it, is seen as kind of convincing the regular Americans, regular colonists of the need for independence. And again, it's not a coincidence, right? It's published in January, is really, really popular in those months leading up to it, and then eventually, right, halfway through the year, the Declaration of Independence is uh, in order to be written, of course, by Thomas Jefferson. Minor adjustments eventually passed, and uh, now there's no going back, right? Now it will be independence or nothing. And, uh, you know, that change, that is what goes on in mid-1776. All right, guys, so all this stuff, and we're barely getting to the fighting. So again, I'll just, I've already gone way too long, I apologize. But uh, let's get through it. So as far as the fighting for independence and the battles that take place, so initially Americans are really overconfident, right? They've uh, gotten that, a lot of that confidence from the battles of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, which they perform very, very well. But as soon as George Washington kind of gets to New England, he has a lot of trouble with disciplining the troops and trying to sustain kind of and maintain a continental army. Uh, again, they're, uh, you, it's like kind of ironic, right? The Americans are resisting and all that stuff. And so because of that, maybe lack of discipline or whatever you want to call it, Washington himself has a lot of trouble getting the troops to kind of focus and stay there. And this will be a big thing. Like, guerrilla warfare is important, but in a lot of ways it was more important for the militias, the ones that are kind of holding pockets around the uh, American colonies. For Washington, he was very traditional. Like, sometimes he'll utilize those tactics to his benefit. But his main thing was just fielding an army, keeping it alive, keep on fighting. You know, in his view, the Continental Army was a symbol of American independence. And as long as they fielded an army, as long as they fought the independence kind of movement, that rebel, uh, you know, sort of sentiment was still alive. So that's what he'll try to do. Uh, good. All right, guys, so the uh, some of the kind of key things uh, otherwise uh, are also the uh, role of uh, African Americans in the war. More will fight for England. 
that fight for the U.S. Again, I believe your text has a, a stat where something like 10,000 fight for the American colonies. Most of those will be in the north because of uh, governments like the one in Rhode Island, which actually offered freedom for any African-American that fought uh, for the state of Rhode Island and fought for the American cause. And the troubling thing will be states like Georgia, South Carolina, right? those with heavy African-American populations will not kind of offer that freedom. They're not willing to do that, right? They're so dependent on that labor. Uh, and especially later on in the war when the British move south, they will offer freedom to those uh, you know, Africans that are willing to fight. So you know, basically about double the number, about 10,000 fight for the British during the war. And you know, one of the kind of unsaid or unspoken of sad things is after the war, right, when the British lose and these... African Americans were promised their freedom. They're going to be relocated all over the Americas. Um, you know, they're they're first off not allowed to stay because they fought against the American colonies, and um, you know, not even kind of necessarily welcome back in England either. So again, kind of an ugly story. All right, guys. So the key thing for the British is to do this as fast as possible. Is uh, a lot of instability as far as leadership. So in the beginning, we had a general named Thomas Gage, right? He was the one kind of there with the Intolerable Acts, been there for a while, but. He's replaced eventually by a general named uh, William Howe. And whenever they basically change generals, they choose a change of strategy. So basically, Boston is kind of abandoned. It seems kind of a lost cause. You're surrounded by the enemy. And Howe chooses to relocate and make kind of British HQ in uh, New York, specifically beginning in Staten Island. And then that'll be kind of the core of a, a strong British force. Now, part of this kind of plan was to meet up with a pretty large force coming uh, kind of from upstate New York and from Canada. And the idea is to cut off New England, cut off uh, there at the middle colonies at New York. And I think sometimes the British are, I've heard it referred to as cutting the head off the snake, right? Because since all the problems are in the north or in the middle colonies, you kind of uh, isolate that, target it, and then defeat it. And, um, you know, that'll be kind of a good portion of the middle uh, part of the war. Uh, main thing as far as the campaign of New York, we don't need a ton of detail, but just in general for the Americans, it goes terribly in New York. Uh, Washington has a lot of trouble with disciplining his troops, with getting them to, you know, to kind of fight and kind of stay in the battle. And he suffers some pretty crushing defeats in New York. Uh, your book makes a good case, and a lot of historians feel this way, that you know, a lot of people claim that the British have been a bit more aggressive in some of those victories, or after some of those victories in New York, they very well could have maybe won the war. But, you know, luckily, right, for the sake of the U.S. and independence later on, uh, they won't. So, you know, after some of those campaigns in New York, specifically and kind of all throughout 1776, Washington and the remnants of this Continental Army are kind of running through New Jersey, eventually escaping into Pennsylvania. And then late in 1776, there's two key victories where Washington really shows that, uh, you know, he has kind of the wherewithal to maybe lead this army, maybe come out on top. And so those two are the Battle of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton, where, you know, basically, like, these are the darkest of times, and Washington is able to kind of rally his troops and get two fairly decisive victories and uh, turn the tide a little bit, right? Those weren't necessarily big military engagements, but at a time when they'd been losing and been crushed in New York, kind of just what they needed. On a different point is, remember I told you back in the part of the kind of British strategy was to rendezvous with a, another large force from Canada. Well, this large force that was arriving or headed south from Canada and kind of going through the Hudson Valley in New York is led by a guy named General John Burgoyne, a very arrogant man, and he's traveling very slow with a lot of troops, about 6,000 troops and about 2,000 accompaniment, uh, like sort of a... Uh, how do we say, like a kind of following camp, right? A lot of the soldiers' wives, people like that, uh, people to maintain the army. And so they're moving very slow, and all the meanwhile, um, British forces under a guy named Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold are able to kind of pick at them, pick at them, and harass them so much that eventually they're forced to surrender. 
So a very, very sizable British force, right, upwards of 5,000 men, are forced to surrender to Gates and Benedict Arnold. And uh, now, really, things are starting to kind of look up for the Americans. And so the funny thing is, you know, we call that Battle of the Battle of Saratoga. It's the turning point of the war. Washington wasn't even involved. It was, uh, you know, the guy who would, be trade, would become a traitor, right, Benedict Arnold, and a guy who really detested and disliked George Washington, a general named Horatio Gates. But again, please remember that Battle of Saratoga, very important in the war effort. So part of the reason it's so important is, you know, this whole time in these first few years of the war, the U.S. is trying pretty desperately to secure a, a, a formal alliance with France. Now, France and Spain are already helping us kind of under the table and fairly, uh, you know, sufficiently with supplies and all that stuff. But Franklin and some delegates uh, appointed by Congress are working hard to try to secure a formal alliance with France. And part of the reason why Saratoga is so important is it's kind of the last straw. Finally, the French see some hope and they see that the prospects look decent for an American victory. So once Saratoga happens, as well as some very nifty uh, kind of you know, politicking from Benjamin Franklin, uh, we'll be able to secure that French alliance. So your book is on going to explain a lot of detail, right? You can read if you want a little bit more on those details with the French alliance. But the French are now kind of tied to America and are willing to kind of put in uh, their considerable navy, their considerable resources to make sure America wins this war. Again, as much as they wanted to help the Americans, it was a lot about getting, getting to their old enemy, right? Getting to uh, that country that they've been rivals with for hundreds of years. All right, guys. So, again, we have another switch in the leaders of the British uh, during the war. So a guy named General Henry Clinton will replace William Howe. And, again, Howe was the one who kind of was based in New York and had that kind of moment. But after Saratoga, it's such a crushing defeat for the British. Howe is, uh, basically resigns his position, and a new uh, you know, general comes in, Henry Clinton. And then along with the new uh, general, it's almost like a new head coach, a new strategy. So what he's going to do is he's going to have an idea to focus the late stages of the war in the American South. It was largely deemed that the American South had more loyalists, people supporting the crown, people that still wanted to remain with England. So the belief was there, and also counting on the slaves to rise up. And uh, the idea was with the loyalists, with the slaves, they could beat back the rebels and uh, kind of create a new base sort of in the South. And initially, the things start pretty well. Uh, they were able to take Charlestown and have some key victories against the Americans. But basically, to kind of uh, make a long story short, too late, I know, but, uh, you know, what starts happening is some of the smaller American forces begin to kind of lure uh, these British armies into the interior of places like Virginia and the Carolinas and strain them and strain them and strain them. And the kind of second in command at this time was a gentleman named Lord Cornwallis, who was under Henry Clinton. And as he's being kind of strained and strained and kind of pulled further into the interior, he eventually has to go back to the coast to get resupplied by, uh, you know, the British Navy. And on one of his endeavors to do this, right, he heads back to the coast of Virginia on a place called Yorktown, and word is able to be word is sent out to Washington, who was in the kind of Pennsylvania area uh, at that time, and he moves very very quickly. As soon as he hears Cornwallis headed to the coast, he moves south, and that's where kind of the last checkmate occurs, where Washington sweeps down with a fairly massive force, and now thousands of French troops also aiding in the uh, campaign. And uh, as they get there, it's really kind of a perfect sort of double move. We have that trap of the, on the land from Washington and the French uh, troops, as well as the French Navy is able to secure the Chesapeake. So for at least a short time, the French had the you know, sort of uh, advantage on the, uh, in the, on the oceans, and that changes everything. I mean, after that, it's basically Cornwallis and his thousands of men give up, or they're going to be massacred by this French and American force. 
So that is it. That is checkmate. That's how America kind of wins its independence. Now it'll be up to the politicians to kind of get that done. So again, Yorktown is the decisive battle, right? It's the one that wins the war for the American side. And uh, that takes place in mid-October 1781. And Cornwallis is that surrendering general. Uh, very good. Uh, one thing also, sorry, I just wanted to mention, make sure you prepare for the test and the quiz. It's important to realize the importance of the French, like not only getting the ground troops later in the war, but the Navy. Like, you know, keep in mind, England and France are only separated by, you know, what is it, 100 miles and plus of the English Channel. So, you know, think of, think of, keep in mind all that's going on over here, tens of thousands of troops, all that. But now the British have to worry about the French Navy. And even though it's definitely not as strong as their Navy, you know, the British are already stressed out and strained all over the place because of the battle with the Americans. So that worry and that new, uh, now that the French were kind of fully involved, something they had to definitely worry about and consider in these late stages of the war. All right, guys, we're almost there. Sorry. All right, guys, so the last section focuses on what they call the Loyalist Dilemma and uh, the also the Diplomatic Campaign for Independence. So the main thing, and it, it does paint an interesting picture for the Loyalists, right? So the people that have been loyal to England throughout the war faced a very, very tough decision. And uh, many of them, more than 100,000, choose to exile, basically choose to leave America permanently. Many of them will end up in places like Canada, Newfoundland. Others will go back to England. But again, they're in a weird position because they're seen as sort of second-class English citizens because they were not English. They were, you know, raised and born in the colonies. And then they can't stay in the colonies because of all that intimidation, all that, right? No one wanted to stay in a place where their neighbors would maybe harm them because they were loyal to the king during the war, maybe confiscate property. Uh, your book, it goes on even to explain about some murders and stuff like that that happened. So, again, a really rough situation for these loyalists during the war. Again, a little bit over 100,000 relocate. Uh, good. And these were called Tories kind of during the war, the people loyal to England, loyal to the king. All right, guys, at the end, uh, just the last little part, winning the peace, right? So now Congress appoints a very masterful, very kind of all-star team to go argue for peace. And this is uh, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay. Uh, again, all very uh, sharp kind of politicians. And they'll use their savvy to kind of try to secure independence. So their main objective is just get recognition, period, from England. As long as they do that, uh, the other directive was to basically follow the French lead. Now, once they get there, the French kind of are in a little bit of a rough situation because the French are also tied to Spain. And Spain was going undergoing some issues with the English and trying to recapture uh, Gibraltar, a place that they'd held for a long time. And so the Americans kind of see this and don't want to get bogged down in these negotiations. So they kind of negotiate with the... British on the side, and eventually are able to reach an agreement. Um, now, the French did know what was going on, but in the end, kind of just looked past it and allow the Americans to uh, get their peace. So, of course, the main thing is independence, right? The United States will be free of England, period. But also, the key things here, and this is where you know, a lot of U.S. history has this sort of, it's weird, it's kind of like luck, or you know, some people call it destiny, maybe. I don't know about that. But all that territory that England had fought for in the French Indian War is basically transferred to the Americans, so from the Mississippi uh, River all the way to the coast, except for Florida, which is given back to the Spanish, uh, this is now American territory. So not only did we win this war, it was a very difficult war against a very tough opponent, but we kind of doubled our land holdings, right? Because not only do we get the lines up to the proclamation line, now we've gotten lines all the way to the Mississippi. So again, a very kind of sweetheart deal for the Americans. And uh, you know this will also bring up a lot of problems and stuff for this new government and new issues for them to deal with. Thank you so much, guys. I apologize for going so long. I just uh, wanted to make sure you get all the info you need. All right, have a great night. See you later.